Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. In the book of 2 Kings, chapter 13, verses 10 to 20. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory uh, uh, over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end to them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died, and they buried him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. A couple reminders if you're a a student we have uh, sermon challenges in the back for you to, uh, to participate in. It's a good way to, to learn how to follow along with a sermon and increase your depth of God's Word each week. So we really encourage any children to participate in that. We also have an adult version uh, in the back to take notes uh, with the sermon as well. Okay, it is 2020. We uh, are starting a new series. Uh, the graphic, you'll, you'll see it in a second, but... It's called What If? Choosing the Path of Faith. And uh, the idea of this series, it it kind of stems from uh, the father of the Reformation, Martin Luther. When he uh, came to uh, the door of Wittenberg to post his 95 theses calling for reform of the church, his very first thesis, thesis was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent. He intended that the entire life of believers 
should be repentance. And so the idea is that the, the life of faith is a, is a life of constant renewal in repentance, in increasing faithfulness, in following harder after the Lord, of, of setting aside what has entangled us in sin and setting afresh the pursuit of the Lord. That is a daily commitment. Faith is not just a, a moment in the past, a, a piece of paper you filled out at a particular event. It is a life that is meant to be lived before the Lord. And so as we think about that, uh, we are, are recognizing in this image that every day of our life, we are facing wise in the road, wise that, that have on one side of the road a path of unfaithfulness, and on the other fork, a path of faithfulness. And every day as we, as we think about life as repentance, we are on a path of proving our confession or disproving our confession, of strengthening our faith or weakening our faith, of growing in the Lord or of fading in the Lord. And so this picture is to put in front of us a reminder that every day we face a why in our faith with something on one side and faithfulness on the other. And the question I want to be posing to us each week is, what path are you on? There are going to be many whys that we are going to look at. This series will look at different stories in the Scripture that are going to illustrate some of these key uh, uh, whys in the road that come in the walk of faithfulness. Today, we are going to look at one of the most seductive paths presented to Christian and unchristian alike to move us away from faithfulness. It is a path that offers a sense of security. It's a path of comfort, of composure, of superiority. Those who are on this path have an air of, of just being a little wiser, a little bit more uh, 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 figured out than someone else. They're sophisticated. It is a path for one that is wise uh, in this world. It keeps us out of those many heated and divisive issues that seem so foolish in this world. It is a path that the world rewards. If you embrace this path, you will be somebody that the world will call wise and will affirm in many, many ways. What is this path? This is the path of spiritual indifference. Spiritual indifference. This is a, a, a fairly popular path. It has actually been, uh, it has, has coined an entirely new term in our vernacular. You've heard of the atheist, the person who does not believe that there is a God, the agnostic who really doesn't know whether there is or is not a God, well, there is now a, a new term to describe this burgeoning group of people, and that is called apathyism. Apathyism. And that is the belief, as defined by um, a gentleman by the last name Rauch, a disinclination to care all that much about one's own religion, and an even stronger disinclination to care about other people's religion. 
It is this idea that the question of God and the question of faithfulness really doesn't matter that much. It is pretty evident that this belief in apathyism of spiritual indifference is ravaging the nation at least. Outside of the church, do you know what the largest growing group of people that answer the the question about their religious affiliation is? They're a whole new group. It was coined 10 years ago. They're called the Nons. In 2009, the Pew... uh, Center discovered that 8% of the United States population described themselves as not affiliated with any belief system in particular. They basically looked at the religion survey and they said, meh. Well, that was in 2009. This year, the survey was issued again, and that number has gone up to 17%. It has more than doubled. It is the fastest growing segment of belief in our country. That is what we see in our nation, a group of people more and more afflicted by apathyism, by spiritual indifference. But this isn't a sermon to look out there. We must also recognize that this condition of spiritual indifference lives in the church. Our Savior Jesus Christ addressed the church of Laodicea, the last church in the, in, the, in, in the set of seven churches in Revelation 1 through 3, with these words, Revelation 3, 15 to 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You see, the, the, the idea in that, in that church was if you were hot, there are things that hot things can do. They can be therapeutic. They can minister. And there are things that cold things can do. They can be therapeutic and they can minister. But you have somehow lived a spiritual life that has no benefit to anyone. You are neither hot nor cold. You are this meh in the middle that we call lukewarm. And this being lukewarm elicits such a terrifying word from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He says, when you come before me, you create a gagging reflex in my throat. I want to vomit the lukewarm, the meh of of spiritual indifference that is infecting my church. Let me ask you a personal spiritual inventory question. What is your spiritual temperature? What would you call yourself? What what, what degree of of spiritual intensity and fervor and and, and, and liveliness would would you give yourself? Is it where you want it to be? Are you content with your your present spiritual temperature? I ask it a different way. If your spiritual temperature was put in everyone else in this church, would we be hotter or colder? Would this church be livelier or less lively? And even if you think that this church would be more lively, that it would be more active, it would be more passionate about the gospel, would it 
come to the spiritual temperature that, that really represents vigor for the Lord. You see, all of us need to take the question of spiritual indifference seriously. Even if at this present moment you are pursuing hard after the Lord, spiritual indifference always stands at the door. A.W. Tozer, one of the uh, uh, acolytes of, of spiritual passion of the last century, wrote these words of himself. He says, I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with more longing. I thirst to be made thirsty still. So even if you're all A.W. Tozer, then your desire is to be vigilant in growing in zeal and staving off the path of spiritual indifference. Our passage today illustrates the path of indifference very well. It tells the story of one of Israel's kings named Jehoash, who is stricken with this condition of indifference. And it, and it poses tantalizingly right in the middle our, our question for this series, what if he had not taken the path of indifference? There were two futures in front of this king. So we're going to go through this passage and discover the seriousness of indifference. And by doing that, hopefully see how we can guard ourselves against this path. And the way we're going to proceed is we're going to let this passage pose for us four questions about the path of spiritual indifference. And then we're going to see how the passage answers it. The four questions we're going to look at is, how does the path of indifference begin? Then we are going to look at what marks the path of indifference. Third, we will see what do those who take this path become. And finally, fourth, how do we keep our faith from indifference? So if you have the Bible open at this point, uh, 2 Kings chapter 13, the first the first simple low-hanging fruit to stay out of indifference is to have your Bible open to where the preacher is wanting to talk today. So let's have those Bibles open, all right? Question one, how does the path of indifference begin? So we look at this passage, the answer is this. It begins with quenched affections. The path of indifference begins with quenched Quenched affections. Now, because the book of 2 Kings is one of the most confusing to pick up and read because it has names that are unfamiliar and dynasties and two kingdoms, uh, let me set some historical context for us to make sense of, of this particular passage. And let me start really wide with the whole story of the Old Testament. There is an acronym that we uh, learned on Wednesday night a couple, uh, about a year ago, that I think is very useful in keeping track of the storyline of the Old Testament. And the acronym is CASKET. CASKET, C-A-S-K-E-T. And here's how it helps you remember. CASKET, C 
stands for the story of creation. That's where the Bible begins. Genesis 1 through 11 deals with the story of creation. A stands for Abraham, the patriarchs. And that really covers the story of Israel, or the story of the Old Testament from Genesis 12 to Genesis 50. Everything from Abraham to to Joseph. Then S stands for Sinai, the giving of the law. So that includes everything from Exodus and Moses all the way through the giving of the law and the Ten Commandments. Uh, And then it also includes the, the conquest into the land, so Joshua and Judges. So everything from Exodus to Joshua and Judges fits under that idea of the giving of the law, S, Sinai. K stands for kings. And that refers to the period that starts in the middle of 1 Samuel with uh, King Saul and goes all the way to the end of the, the, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, which brings us to the letter E, which is exile. Because of Israel's unfaithfulness, idolatry, and disobedience, God exiles through the Assyrians to the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. and to the Babylonians for the southern kingdom, Judah, in 787 B.C. Uh, So they come into this great era of disobedience and exile. And that ends with the letter T, which is temple. Temple refers to the, the, the remnant that is brought back from exile to rebuild the temple and to restart some form of uh, the nation of Judah again. So casket, creation, Abraham, Sinai, kings, exile, temple. When we read the book of Second Kings, anybody want to guess which one of those letters we're in? Yeah, we're in kings. We're in the period of kings. And inside the period of kings, we have two kingdoms. After David's son Solomon ruled, the kingdom of Israel broke. The northern kingdom, which took on the name Israel, which is what we are dealing with in this passage, and the southern kingdom, which is the line of David, called Judah. So the northern kingdom starts in 930 B.C., and it lasts all the way to 722 B.C., it is an intriguing period. I mean, I think uh, if, if Game of Thrones was a great series, the story of kings probably, and I'm not, I'm not advocating Game of Thrones, but you know, what that, that whole idea of, uh, of conquest and intrigue and stuff like that, I mean, the Bible has, has it beat. Uh, 930 to 722 BC, it starts with a king named Jeroboam. Jeroboam is the first king in the northern kingdom, uh, which we're also going to call Israel. And the very first thing that he does is to try and get these people to be a united to him and to, to, to be a nation, is he creates two golden calves up in the north country and says, these are your gods to worship. And so the northern kingdom from that point on has these two golden calves. And if we know the, the uh, Exodus story, a golden calf is just a terrible idea for God's people. But they, built, they put up these two golden calves, and they sit there, and they are sort of uh, functioning as the religious alternative for the northern kingdom. Now, it gets even worse. After a couple uh, kings come along, a, a uh, really rotten king named Ahab comes to the throne, and he leads Israel in uh, Baal worship, which is one of the pagan gods of the area. And we see uh, all of Israel go under uh, the, the influence of Baal. It is so bad that God in his mercy sends a prophet named Elijah 
who goes and does mighty works. One of the most well-known is where he puts the, the kingdom of the, the priest of Baal and himself against one another and sees which one of the gods will accept the sacrifice. And of course, all the prophets of Baal are uh, embarrassed and fooled and put to death, and the one true God, Yahweh, is established. Well, Elijah's successor is Elisha, who is in our story today. Elisha, one of the big things that he does is that he anoints a king named Jehu. And Jehu comes along to purge the northern kingdom of all Baal worship and all of the line of Ahab. It's, it's a bloody couple chapters. His grandson is where we pick up the story. His grandson is named Jehoash. And Jehoash in this passage is sometimes called Jehoash and sometimes called Joash. We're just going to call him Jehoash to keep this nice and simple. He is the grandson of Jehu, who has purged the northern kingdom of Baal worship. His reign is from 798 to 782. Now, I already said that the northern kingdom falls apart at 722, so he's close to the twilight of the northern kingdom. That'll become important in a little bit. So what do we see as we get into this passage? We see Jehoash, we hear a little bit about his, his kingdom, and then we get this account of him visiting the prophet Elisha at his deathbed. When uh, Jehoash comes to Elisha, who's suffering from the illness that he is going to, to die, we see that Jehoash appreciates Elisha. What does he come and, and say when he, when he meets Elisha? Verse 14 Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Jehoash had a, a warm place in his heart for Elisha, the prophet. Uh, his grandfather owes his entire uh, kingdom to Elisha. He has seen Elisha do mighty works that have delivered his people in war. And so he comes, and I believe in a very heartfelt manner, gives his appreciation to the prophet Elisha. He's a benefactor of Elisha's miracles. His kingdom has been kept alive and strengthened by good measure because of Elisha. But before we get too caught up in Jehoash's appreciation, we need to recognize something about Elisha. I want to ask this question. What was Elisha's mission? Was Elisha's mission to, to help Israel win various wars and to demonstrate the mighty works of God? Was it simply to be a, 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 an amusement, somebody to appreciate? No. Elisha was sent by God for a mission, and that mission was to bring Israel to repentance to stop what is so clearly marching forward, this exile that's going to come in 722 B.C., the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha were sent to call Israel to repentance, to call them back to devotion to Yahweh alone. This is made clear when we see in that, that passage where Elijah challenges the, the prophets of Baal. Why does he do all of this? Why does he show these miraculous works of God? We, we read in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 36 to 39, this reason. At that time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. 
Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. That is the mission that the prophets had, to bring Israel and their king back to devotion to the Lord. So the question that rises is Jehoash's appreciation that he shows to Elisha, true devotion. No. No. What do, we look, what do we see when we, we read verse 11? Go up to verse 11. Jehoash also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all of the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Remember, Jeroboam is the first king who put up those two golden calves to worship. And we are told that Jehoash is walking in the sins of Jeroboam. He is presently participating in the idolatry that was established by Jeroboam. How devoted is Jehoash to this idolatry? Look down at verse 13. What does he name his own son? He names his son Jeroboam. The son of Jehoash named by Jehoash is Jeroboam, the name of the great king who led Israel into idolatry. But what do we make of this? We have, so, so we have Jehoash who, who shows appreciation to the true prophet of Yahweh, to Elisha, and at the same time we see that he walks with idols. He walks after the sins of Jeroboam. What do we see Jehoash uh, actually having? What is, what is he demonstrating here? Jehoash has a divided heart. Jehoash has a divided heart. He can only say with so much of his heart to Elisha, you have saved my people, when much of him believes that the spiritual and religious and military strength of his nation has something to do with these idols that Jeroboam put up. He cannot give a wholehearted devotion to Elisha's God because he has given his heart already to these idols of Jeroboam. He is coming, even if he is saying the right words, he is coming to Elisha with quenched affection. It is cold. It is is not full. To say it another way, Jehoash visits the prophet, but he walks with the idols. You see the difference? Now the question is, is this a story that helps us? Does this story read us? Well, I think there is probably one mantra that I run into the most when uh, I I am out there talking about religion and faith with somebody out in the world. 
And, and that is, or, or I should say that I hear when somebody comes to faith. And, and that is these words. Maybe you've heard similar words. When somebody tells you they're a Christian or, you know, Mom, I, I became a Christian or something like that. Do you hear these words? Have you heard these words? Well, don't get out of control with your faith. Don't let that faith get in the way or take over everything about your life. There is a mantra in our modern pluralistic society that we should keep our faith in moderation. We should keep it private. We shouldn't let it break forth into the workplace or into other parts of our life. It should be personal and private. In short, the mantra of our age is to take religion, to take faith, and to be half-hearted at best. This is a deeply set mantra. You've all heard the, the phrase, don't talk about politics, don't talk about God, if you want to have polite conversation. I think we live by that. Let me ask you, how zealous is your faith next to your pursuit of career or success or pleasure or security? These are our priorities. And so often we hold back spilling out our faith in these areas because we fear they could become obstacles. They could become trouble in having these other things. The Puritan theologian and preacher Richard Sibbs describes the condition of being half-hearted. He calls it a double heart. I read a portion of one of his sermons. He says, a double heart is particularly dangerous because it will regard God no longer than it can enjoy that which it joins together with him. The devil may be contented with half the heart, but Christ will not have it so. Therefore, the Christian should take heed of the pleasures of the world, lest they drown thy soul, as they do the souls of many that profess themselves to be Christians. Don't let that last sentence be lost. <clears throat> lest they drown thy soul, as they do the souls of many that profess themselves to be Christians. We have a serious condition being half-hearted. <laughs> to put it another way, if you were to... Um, I, I heard a story. No, let me say it differently. Uh, let me ask you this question. If your faith is passionless, if you recognize the temperature of your faith is, is, is kind of lukewarm, look at your loves. Look at what you do love. There was a story of a youth pastor who had several of his uh, young students go off to college and after spending a semester at college, they, they came back and they were noticeably less interested in the Bible and in the church and the things of, of God. Now, you might say, well, of course, they, you know, they, they had that terrible atheistic professor come and, and uh, soil all kinds of doubt in them. 
But this youth pastor was kind of brazen. And instead, he would ask these students that would come back to him saying, I'm just not so sure anymore. He would ask them this question. Tell me, how is your sex life? Why would he ask that question? Pretty brazen. But the youth pastor recognizes that when you give yourself over to a sin, when you give yourself over to to the pleasure of your own body, and you recognize that that is contrary to the will of God, you can do nothing but quench your love for God to pursue your sin. And so the question is, if your faith is passionless, look at your loves. You cannot give your heart to God if it's already been given to an idol or a sin. Jesus says this explicitly, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jeroboam's calves live. To avoid indifference, you must identify your idols and smash them. So question one, how does the path of indifference begin? It begins with quenched affections. Question two, what marks the path of indifference? Answer, spiritual minimalism. Spiritual minimalism. Let us look at detail this bizarre part of the the passage, verses 15 through 19. Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands, and he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him. Now, this is such a bizarre story. I, I remember reading this the first time several, several years ago and just thinking, how bizarre. I mean, this guy, Jehoash, follows all of the instructions. He does exactly what Elisha tells him to do. It's like, it's like Jehoah, Elisha is, is giving something and then immediately taking it away. And who could possibly read Elisha's mind? How can, you, how can you discern what he really wants? This is just one of those classic no-win situations. I mean, he, he's told, shoot the arrow. He, he shoots the arrow. He's told, take these arrows and pound the ground. He pounds the ground. And then after all of that, he still comes up with an angry prophet. Like, you just can't please these prophets. They're just impossible. Well, a couple keys that we need to grasp to understand what's going on in this passage is to answer the question, what is a prophet? What is a prophet? Verse 19a tells us what a prophet is. The man of God. That is what a prophet is. He is called a man of God. And what he speaks is the word of God. And what is Elisha's message? Verse 17, let's look at this message. This is a great message. Open the window eastward, shoot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. 
He is telling this king, Jehoash, you are going to have deliverance from your great enemy, the Syrians. The, 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 the story of 2 Kings recounts the evil atrocities and military victories of the Syrians under Ben-Hadad and Hazael and, and how they have, have absolutely ravaged the nation of Israel. And here, Jehoash is being told, your great enemy, the one that you have been terrified by and your people have been harassed by and killed by and raped by, guess what? Total victory. You are going to be delivered from your enemy. Now, Jehoash, respond to this good news. Take these arrows in your hand and pound the ground. Is that enough? Three hits, and he stops. Now, you could go, go down the wrong rail here. The story is not about how many times Jehoash hit the ground. It is about the heart that was involved here. The question you should be asking of Jehoash is, why three? Why three hits? Because he is a spiritual minimalist, and what is in his mind is this question. What is enough? What is enough to make this old crazy prophet happy? One is too few. Two is kind of weak. Three will be the charm. I'll hit this ground three times. It is passionless. It is apathetic. It is the minimum. And that is what I want us to recognize about Jehoash. He is practicing spiritual minimalism. The controlling question for him is not passion and zeal and how can I make the Lord delighted, but what is enough to get this God off my back? What is enough worship? What is enough giving? What is enough serving? What is enough participating? Once I get there, I'm set free. You see, passionate obedience is not calculating. It's zealous. As the Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. It is like the woman who, who visits Jesus on the, the, the night before his arrest. She is so filled with the message of salvation, so delighted in him, that she takes her precious jar of perfume, her precious nard that she had been saving for who knows what, but it was worth more than her house. And because she is so delighted and so filled with passion, because my Lord is here and I want to communicate just how abundant my response and love is to him, that he, she takes the nard and she breaks it open and covers him in this precious perfume to communicate the overwhelming control that she has of love for him. Beloved, do we have good news? 
Do we have a message of great salvation? Have we been told that our great enemy has been crushed? And how are you responding? Are you breaking the nard and say, let me be a broken vessel filling this world with the aroma of your love? Or are we going... Is that enough, Lord? Open your ears to the gospel. Let it open your life with wholehearted obedience. Question three. What do those who take this path become? Answer. Losers. I don't want to polish it any. They become losers. Look at verse 19. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. What is Elisha's response? He's angry. He's angry because his heart is broken. He just put in front of this man great news. And he got back apathy. Is it right? Is it, is it fair that Elisha gets mad? I mean, Jehoash technically obeyed, right? He, he followed the commands. He did something. The key issue is this is a response to the word of God. And look at the command again. Strike the ground. There is no stop in the command. Jehoash added the words stop in his mind. Belief is wholehearted response to the word of God. And if the word of God has no limit on it, then our obedience to it has no limit. The point is, Jehoash should have been pounding the ground until Elisha came back and said, that's enough. Stop. But he decided what obedience looked like. He decided what faithfulness would be. Jehoash gave token obedience and it did not fool God's prophet. What if? Here's the key question of our series. What if? Elisha reveals in verse 19 that there were two paths right in front of Jehoash. Pound the ground with zeal and obedience, and you would have complete victory. Come at it with spiritual minimalism, and you will only have a partial victory. These are the two paths. The path of indifference is taken because Jehoash's response to God's word was apathetic. Jehoash's response to God's word determined his outcome. Jehoash's indifference denied him a full victory. Even more than that, he could have changed the path of the nation if the king had become wholehearted to Elisha's God. 
The whole future of Israel could have been changed in this moment. His indifference cost him the nation dearly. So what do I want us to grasp here? With respect to the gospel, keeping your options open, tempering your love, guarding your heart, staying aloof, doesn't make you smarter. It makes you a loser. You will lose the great salvation, not because you had it, but because your spiritual minimalism reveals you never took it. Token obedience never fools God. He judges the heart. What does Jesus say in Matthew 7, 21? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It is the people who say, Lord, Lord, and show it by a life of obedience that experience salvation. But those who simply say, Lord, Lord, and try to exercise spiritual minimalism, a form of disobedience, they will come up sorry. They will come up losers. So question four, how do we keep our faith from indifference? This is the answer. How do we keep our faith from indifference? And the answer is this, by choosing the path of investment. The path of investment. What does Jesus tell us in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. But lay up yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The opposite of the path of indifference is the path of investment, of pursuing and growing and knowing and obeying. How do you get on that path? Especially when you have a heart like mine that quenches itself all the time, that seems to fight every morning to get out of the cold. There's two things we must do. We must acknowledge We must acknowledge our temptation and our practice of indifference. And second, we must ask. We have hearts given to indifference. Don't excuse it. Don't sit in this sermon and think, it's about that guy over there and that woman over there. It's about you. It's about me. Spiritual indifference is the enemy of all of us. So don't excuse it by being relatively less a problem than someone else. Acknowledge it. And second, we must seek a new heart. We must seek a wholehearted devotion. How? You're not going to get this by going home and, and kicking yourself spiritually. You have to ask. You have to beg. You have to seek God who is the only one who can give you a heart that will love God the way he deserves. It is not in our ability, but it is in God's gift. And so if you go and you see 2 Kings chapter 2, you will see that Elisha had the same conversation 
with Elijah that Jehoash had with Elisha. But the difference is when Elijah was leaving this earth, Elisha said, I want what you have. Don't leave me without the spirit that's in you. I want that. I want that. And it is because he wanted that that God gave Elisha the same spirit that he had on Elijah. He received a spirit of devotion because he asked for it. Beloved, Christ will give you a heart for God. You only need to ask. Look at, chapter, at the Gospel of Luke, verses 9 to 13. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I am laying in front of you the wholehearted heart. And I am saying you can have it just by asking God to fill you with it. To seek God for it. Please don't turn back to the path of indifference. The path of investment, the gift of the Holy Spirit is laid before you freely. Beloved, turn from indifference. Invest yourself in God. Walk with Him by smashing your idols, ask, seek, knock, he will give you a heart that hungers for him. Do you hunger? Let us all end by praying together this prayer of A.W. Tozer. Let it be our own prayer. Father, I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with more longing. I thirst to be made thirsty still. Give us your Holy Spirit, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.